This past several days, actually began Thursday night and uh, through Friday noon, the men had an opportunity to attend the men's retreat, what was held at Eagle Pass Lodge, a beautiful facility about an hour and a half from here that is provided to us at, at no charge, and just a wonderful facility to get away to, and about 30 of you took advantage of that at, uh, for at least a portion of it throughout the last few days, and we're hoping just to continue to have that event and to offer it to you, and I hope even next year you'll make plans to attend with us if you weren't able today. But one of the special privileges we had of that weekend was to have Paul Poteet uh, with us to uh, to share with us and to interact with us, along with uh, Nate Van Zee, who came along and the last morning shared his testimony. They both work with... Uh, with outreach ministries to college students in the Twin Cities area uh, under the, the shepherdship of Bethlehem Church. And uh, it was just a wonderful time together, time to be in some sessions together, time to be quiet, alone if you needed to, the facility's big enough to participate in some activities, those kinds of things. This gave real freedom to do lots of different things and to get disconnected a bit and, uh, and hear some, some things out of the scriptures to us. And uh, we're grateful that part of that opportunity this year, we decided to connect our speaker to us here on Sunday morning. And so Paul graciously consented to stay over and to speak to us this morning, which I think will help bring the wives in a bit to the event and then our whole body into the event a bit, give a bit of a taste of that to you. So we're delighted that he's here. He does um, work on staff at Bethlehem Church, and so pretty quickly this morning has to make his way um, east to get back for a meeting tonight because they as well are launching some of their fall programs and he needs to be there for a small group meeting there. But he'll be here for a bit following the service. You may be able to greet him, but just open your hearts to them as as they are with us and as Paul comes to share with us. Just pray God will will minister again to our hearts by his spirit. Paul, God bless you as you come. Well, thank you for letting me be here. It's uh it's a great privilege to be able to speak to a church like this. I felt the whole time we were singing that I was at my church because we sing a lot of these same songs and just the, the focus on Jesus. It just reminded me of being back at, at Bethlehem. So it, it's an astounding thing, isn't it, that, that I could be in churches in South Carolina this summer and be in my church in Minneapolis most of the time during the year, but to come out here and to to have the same unity and like-mindedness and focus on Jesus is just an a amazing blessing that I think we have. Um, does everything sound good with my... Okay. I have fairly large ears, and I was born with these large ears, and then my body has slowly grown into them. And so these things always give me trouble because they want to pop off. I need the extra, extra large earpiece. Um, I'm really excited to share this morning for a few other reasons than, than the ones I've already mentioned. One is every session that I shared at at the men's retreat is in this beautiful lodge where the lights are low and the food is rich and the chairs are reclining in leather. And so now I have full confidence that these men, I will have their attention because there's nothing. I mean, these are really comfy pews, but they don't recline. You didn't just eat some of the best food you've ever had in your life, so I know that I have the men's attention this morning. And I'm really excited 
to get to speak with, with the ladies here as well. So if you have some questions about your husbands, come talk to me afterwards and I'll give you the, I'll give you the down low on what's going on with those guys. Um, some of them tried to swindle me at golf. Some of them hustled me at pool. I, I've gotten, I've gotten a good introduction to South Dakota life. Um, I grew up in South Carolina. And so I, I, I talked to a few people, and I think the accent that I used to have has gone away somewhat. But if you can still hear it, then, then you're welcome for the exotic sound. Whenever, whenever I hear a pastor speak from Australia or Scotland or England, and they have a, a really cool accent, I just love listening to them. And I've wanted to maintain that a little bit for you guys with my southern accent, uh, if it comes out. Um, so like Pastor Ron said... What we talked about this weekend was, um, I'm going to go in a little bit reverse order. We ended with this challenge to take the, the powerful relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and talk to other people about that. People maybe in our neighborhoods or at our schools or in our workplace, you know, wherever it might be, that we have this amazing blessing that we've sung about, that we've, that we've already talked about so much this morning of holding out the treasure of Jesus Christ to people. But what really helps you do that is, is okay, if that was the, the most outward ring, you bring it in a little bit, and what helps you do that is when you have a community of people speaking into your life and, and holding you accountable. We talked about as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So there's a sharpening element that happens as, as we interact with the body of Christ. So what you guys experience here and what we experienced over the last few days is this getting close together, being honest about our lives, and speaking into our lives. But what really allows you to do that is, is the, the deepest level in is understanding who you are in, in light of a holy and righteous and perfect God. And uh, in our ministry, in campus outreach in Minneapolis, this summer we... we our students go down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We take about 120 students down there. They live at a hotel for two months and they work jobs and we do Bible studies and different things. And we also give them a little book. And this year we gave them a little book by a guy named A.W. Tozer. And in that book, he's got a quote and I'm going to read the quote to you. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So he's saying when it comes to who you are, that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And, and we talked about that some this summer. But I, I really like, I, I quoted him a few times over the last few days, I really like C.S. Lewis. And he has another quote where he talks about this quote. He says this, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing about us is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son, is unimaginable. So one guy is saying the most important thing about you is what you think about God. But the other guy is saying, no, the most important thing about you is what God thinks about you. And I want to I want to tease that out for a second. Imagine that all of a sudden there was a big noise in the back of the church, and the doors flung open, and in walks God, or in walks Jesus, and you turn around and you catch eyes with him, and he's looking at you. 
what would his face be? Would he be smiling? Would he be upset? Would he be like giving you that glare? Sometimes I have two little, two little girls and, and I have, they tell me that I have this look. My wife tells me I have this look as well. Um, would you be getting the look from Jesus? What would his countenance be? What does he think of you? That's what C.S. Lewis is asking. What does God think about you? Is he pleased? Is he disgusted? Is he growing impatient? Is he like tapping his, like tapping his foot as he's looking at you? What is God's countenance upon you? Because honestly, what, what else matters? That's what he's saying. It's the most important thing in the world. The most important thing about you is what God thinks about you, how God looks at you, how God views you. And, you know, we talked this weekend with the guys. One of my questions for them is that every man asks the question, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Am I man enough? Can I, can I do enough? And what I mentioned to them, I believe in, in the brief amount of time that I've been married and interacting with my wife, that the question that I would hold out that women ask is, am I lovely? Am I lovable? And in even those two questions of do I have what it takes and am I lovely that men and women might ask, even those things don't come close to what does God think about me? What is God's countenance for me? Is God pleased? Does God like me? We, we, we sing songs and we talk about how God loves us, but does that really go deep? Do you really feel that? If he were here, what would he be? What would he say? What would he do? How would you feel? Um, and, and then maybe there's some of you in here who don't really even ask that question. Like you're, you're investigating. You were invited here this week. This is your first time coming. All these things are starting up and you thought, I, I want to be a part of this startup stuff. And you've not really asked that question. You don't really think about it. But you do think about approval. We all long to, to be delighted in and to be praised. I, I, I like... Um, the Lord of the Rings, and in those books, the author has a quote where one of the kings says, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. So when someone who you esteem highly says something good about you or compliments you, it means a lot. I, I sometimes do welcomes at our church, and, and I'll have my college students come up and say, that was a great job, Paul. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's great. But one time, I picked up our, our former pastor, he's a guy named John Piper, and I picked him up at the airport. We were in this snowstorm, and he had to ride in the car with me for about 30 minutes. And he said to me at, at a lull in the conversation, Paul, I love it when you do the welcomes at our church. It just really encourages me. And that meant something. You know, it's one thing for this little uh, 18-year-old freshman who doesn't really know very much to say, good job. It's another thing for this veteran minister and author to say, that, that was really good. And... and even that doesn't mean very much compared to the creator of all the universe. What does he think? What does he say about you? What does he say about me? How can we know for sure, right? That, that's the question. When I was growing up, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in South Carolina. And every Sunday, the pastor would give an invitation and we would have a song that played for usually a long time until someone came to the front. And, and it, it would invite you up to pray a prayer. Or to uh, ask Jesus to come into your life. And it was very sincere. I, I really believe that. And I, um, I remember walking down the aisle to the song, Just As I Am. And then I think I walked back 
up the aisle just as I was. And, and yet I didn't know, like, am I, am I praying it the right way? Like, am I saying it right? Or am I doing it enough? And so I can remember sitting back in the pew. I'd already walked up once, so I couldn't walk up again. But I remember month after month thinking, okay, I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to pray back here in, in the pew because I just don't know if I've done enough. I don't know what God would think about me. I'm not sure. And then I can remember being in my bed at night praying, okay, God, um, come into my life. I, I want to have faith in you. And, and just not being sure, have I done enough to get God's smile? Am I being good enough to get God's smile? How do I know? And I wonder for you, how do you know? I mean, maybe you feel, you feel the same thing that I did, this uncertainty of, of, is my faith strong enough? Or do I believe enough? Or maybe you think, there's no way he loves me. Because it, it, he knows the sin in my heart. He knows this one sin that I've struggled with for years upon years upon years. So I don't have any hope. I know he's frustrated with me. I know he. Sh- I know I, what I've heard is that he loves me, but honestly, he's disappointed in me. And so, how can we know? I think that's the the fundamental question that we that we need answered more than anything else is how do we know that we have God's smile? And and the way that I want to go there is in the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, or I don't know if, if maybe you have Bibles in your pews, or um, or your phone, and you can open it up and then swipe around. College ministry, they never bring their Bibles, but they always bring their phones. Um, Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. But before I read it, let me just pray and ask the Lord to do a work by his spirit with us today. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that when we have questions like these, you answer them. There's nothing that I can say. There's nothing that man can do to bring about the the convinced internal feeling that we long for to know that you're pleased with us. And so I pray that you would work. You know each person's answer to that question of what, what would be God's face for them. You know each person's struggle, what each person needs. This is no coincidence that we are here today for this message. And so thank you that you're at work in these ways. And I pray that there, there would be some here who are very comfortable for all the wrong reasons. And would you disrupt them? And there are some who feel very disrupted. And would you comfort them? That's the kind of work that you do. And so we ask you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, to do that work. Amen. So let me read Exodus 12, 21 to 28. Um, this is, you're probably familiar, you know, the Israelites are in Egypt and Moses is leading the people and God has been visiting these plagues on the Egyptians. You know, and he first he turned the water into blood and then he made frogs come out and then uh, hail and struck the cattle and all these things and it's getting up to the last plague that God's going to do to try to convince to move Pharaoh to let the Israelites go and so he's talking to Moses and he's told him what he's going to do and then you know in this passage verse 21 then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through 
to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You will say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Um, so I believe that the way to really understand, to know that God would smile upon you, is by the way he talks about the lamb throughout the Bible, the story of the lamb. And there's a lot of different places in the Bible where he mentions the lamb. We sang a song Behold him there, the risen lamb. We've talked about lamb already today. And I think the more that you understand this idea of, of what is the lamb and what's the deal with this, it, it gets you to the place of knowing that God smiles on you. So I want to I wanna walk through that. Um, in this passage, uh, it, I, have, I have three points. The first one is, why do you need a lamb? So if you think about the Israelites, why did they need a lamb? What was going on? The, the Lord was about to send the destroyer. He, he was about to send some aspect of his power, of his wrath, through the houses, any house, e Egyptian or Israelite, that did not have blood on the door. Everyone was going to meet the destroyer. The destroyer was no respecter of persons. He didn't say, hey, you guys just sit tight, and I'm just going to pass through and kill the Egyptians. He said, no, you have to have the blood of the lamb on your door, or else the destroyer is going to come. And another way to think about that idea, Paul talks about it, you don't have to turn there, is in Romans 3.23. What Paul says is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what he's saying is that every single one of us, every single person, every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth has fallen short of God's standard. And, and has, has lived for themselves in some way, has what he talks about is, is living in sin. And, and a, a way maybe to say that, I'm always thinking of how to help college students understand these terms. One way to think about that is nobody's perfect, right? I mean, everyone agrees with that statement, that there are no perfect people. No one's perfect because everyone is struggling in some way. Everyone has fallen short in some way. That's why if God were to come in, we have that kind of sinking feeling maybe because we know what we've done. We've know, we know what we've thought. Everyone. That's how the Bible talks about it. There, there was a, um, there's a show called American Idol. I don't know if any of you guys ever watch American Idol. Uh, I haven't watched it in a long time. I used to watch a lot of the clips of people who've tried out for American Idol and have not done such a great job. And, and those are some pretty funny clips. Um, but the very first season of American Idol, the girl that won it was named Kelly Clarkson. And now she's gone on to produce a lot of songs. And she has a song on the radio. It's not on the radio anymore. It maybe was on about a year and a half, two years ago, called Dark Side. And what she said in the song, in the chorus, was, everybody has a dark side. And I'm driving down the road, and I'm listening to this, and I think, yes. Yes, amen, Kelly. Like, you've got it. Um, Kelly, you're, you're preaching Romans 3. Um, and, and that, that's what she's talking about. She knows everyone's got this dark side. 
Everyone's got these things about them that they're ashamed of, they're embarrassed of, they wish were different about them, they know they're not perfect. They're living underneath this reality of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, but the, the idea, like the word sin, maybe could be a, a fuzzy concept. So I, I just have two ways to define it. One would be slavery. Being controlled and unable to stop sin's power over you. Maybe, maybe there are things in your life, maybe, maybe some kind of addiction that, that you wish you could just stop. Maybe that's to some kind of drug, maybe that's to food. I think the, the thing that I maybe struggle with the most with addiction is, is maybe work. Because I just never feel like I can stop. Like I always want to be doing more or um, I, I want to, you know, just four more email. Or then I come back home and it's like, well, just wait a second, sweetie. Let me just, I need to do a few more texts. And, and at times I step back and I think, I'm, I'm getting, a, like I'm controlled by these things. And I wonder, is there anything in your life that you feel like is controlling you? That, that you can't stop? That you, you've said, I'm not going to do that again. But then you end up doing that again. I'm, I say that sometimes with my, with my daughters. Um, a few weeks ago, my wife went to Alaska. Her aunt and uncle live up in Alaska, and so she went to visit them for a whole week. So it's just me with my 7-year-old and 5-year-old daughter for the whole week. They didn't have school. It was just camp dad. And uh, that ends up being a lot of apologies from dad. It's camp, more like camp apology from me because I'm, I'm sorry I raised my voice again. I'm sorry I used a scary voice. I'm sorry I gave you the look. What is this look that I give? I don't understand. Um, but at those times, I realize as much as I want to live differently and act differently, so I feel controlled at times by, by my own frustrations or impatience or selfishness. I wonder, what, what might it be for you? Jesus talks to the Pharisees in, in John chapter 8. They say to him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, is controlled by sin. And, and maybe that helps in your understanding of sin. Here's the second definition, adultery. You love other things. Um, God isn't enough. You're unfaithful over and over again. In the, in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, God uses this picture of his people being unfaithful. In, in chapter 2, verse 13 of Hosea, he says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. I wonder, what might you love? What's something in your life that you just have to have? I mean, I shared one of my lovers is control. Maybe I thought about three others. Maybe it's control. You have to be the person that's in control. You're like me. Maybe it's comfort. Anything that's going to make you uncomfortable, you're going to stay away from it because you want to, you want to make sure that you maintain comfort. Maybe it's approval. You're just in love with, with, and overwhelmed by what people think about you, what they say about you, how you look in front of other people. And maybe it's power. It's, it's the ability to make things happen like you want it when you want it. But I just wonder, are there things in your life that you love? Because that's what sin is. That's what Paul is saying. All are under slavery. All are controlled. All love other things and have fallen short of God's standard for them. And because of that, we need a lamb. We need something. Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not right. Um, we are the problem. 
you can understand how bad a problem is by what you do for it. You know, if you, I have a really good friend and he just, his wife is pregnant and she gets really sick when she's pregnant and throws up a lot. So we're talking like 10 to 16 times a day. Has to get IVs. It's really bad. Maybe some of you ladies can relate to that. Um, to help with this, and this is their third pregnancy and everyone has been like this. He's tried to hire someone to come live with them to help take care of the other kids. And so he was down in his basement uh, getting it ready, moving some stuff. And he touched one of the walls and it was a little bit damp. And so he poked his finger through the wall and then had to pull it back. And water's been leaking in and it's just black with mold. And so he just starts pulling, 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 pulling all the way around his entire basement. Had no idea black mold is there. And has had to gut the whole thing. It's, it's been a terrible... He's taken the, the next like month and a half off um, because he's just got so much that's going on in his life right now. But if, if he poked his finger in there and it was a little bit damp uh, and someone came and said, oh, that's not a big deal. If you just, you just put some fans in here and dry it out, no problem. But when someone says, you've got to gut the whole basement, you realize that's, that's a big deal. When you go to the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, just put a little bit of this on it, take a few of these and you should be fine, you feel pretty good. But when the doctor says, you need to come back, Next, next Friday, because we need to do some tests. Uh, my youngest daughter has a rare form of arthritis. And when she was diagnosed, we got a call from the doctor on Friday afternoon. We went and did some tests on Friday morning. We got a call on Friday night, and the doctor said, we don't normally do this, but we need you to come in tomorrow morning. It's Saturday. Our office isn't open, but I'm going to open the office to meet you guys because I need to talk to you about what's going on with your daughter because I'm worried. And, and at that moment, you know, as a parent, this is not, this is not good. This is a bad thing. And, and when Jesus talks about our problem with sin, he doesn't say, uh, yeah, you should just go to church a little bit more. You should just be really good. He says, you need to be born again. That's what you need. It's so bad that you need a completely new life. And so we need a lamb and, and we need more than that. So first, why do you need a lamb? Second, why do we have to kill the lamb? Why a sacrifice? Um, because in the passage, he says, now go and select lambs, kill the lambs, take their blood in a basin and dip hyssop in it and wipe it on the door. Why, why all the blood? Why the sacrifice? Like what's going on with, with all of that? And, and I believe it's because the debt that we have to pay is a big deal. It's not enough to just do little things. There has to be death. Our, our falling short of God's glory, our slavery, our love for other things, the only way to deal with that is, is significant consequences. Um, but, but we don't, we don't believe that because we try to do other things. And I think there are two ways that we try to deal with our sin problem. We know that we've fallen short. We know something's not right. We know that we need more. Uh, we need something to make sure that God is going to smile at us when he walks in the door. And I think there's two ways. One way is self-medicating. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the, Jeremiah says, uh, speaking for the Lord, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So it's one thing to, to leave God, but the other thing that they're doing is they're trying to find other things that satisfy 
You know, Pastor Ron said that, that we all want joy, we all want satisfaction, but we look to all these different places. And I think one of the ways that I see people try to deal with their sin, deal with their understanding that things aren't right, is, is to self-medicate. They run to food, they run to relationships. I see people on the college campus all the time say, if I just was dating someone, if they just like me, then they start dating and they say, if I could just get engaged, if we were just engaged, then they get engaged and they think, once we get married, it'll be great. Then they get married and it's, all we need to do is start having children or I just need this job or whatever and you keep running to other things looking to be satisfied. Maybe it's entertainment, maybe it's work. Um, anything to numb the pain, anything to make you forget about what would God's smile be? Would he be smiling? What is his look at me? What is my relationship like there? Something is not right. And the way to deal with that is to, is to medicate, to try to take it into your own hands and, and fill the void or forget what's really going on. But the other end of the spectrum is self-help. Uh, if this is self-medicating and running to other things, over here is running to yourself. And looking to do it on your own. And this is where I fall out. Um, a, a verse that, that talks about this is in Romans chapter 10. Paul says, I bear witness about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's, that's the self-help. Is okay, I know something's not right. I know that things aren't right with me and God. So I'm going to work really hard. I mentioned to you that we take students down to Myrtle Beach. And one of the things that we do is on the weekends, we go out onto the beach with our 120 students. And there's all kinds of people out there. And we try to talk to people who are on the beach. Maybe you've gone to the beach sometime and had these weird people come up and talk to you. That's, that's our people. That's what we're doing. To just ask people, what do you think about spiritual things? And, and what do you think about God? And it's amazing the number of times that people say, when we're talking about these things, yeah, I need to get my life right first and then I'll start thinking about that stuff. There's a few things that I need to take care of before I really get serious about this God stuff. And that's self-help. It's this belief that what we need to do to make sure that God is smiling on us is try harder, do more, be, be very good, um, work as hard as we can to do the right things, that if we can measure up, if we can keep, if we can have a streak going, then God's going to be pleased with us. And I love this. This was me coming into, into college. And I loved it for a few reasons. It gave me this nice little checklist. Like if, if I was wondering, how am I doing this week? Well, I read my Bible and I went to church and I've been really good and I've, I've not yelled at anyone and I've not been doing what those guys are doing. So I feel pretty good about myself over here. I, I love that. I love being able to compare myself. Well, at least I'm not doing what they're doing. Like, I'm, you know, sometimes you can be sitting in a sermon like this and the preacher is talking about these things and you're thinking, I'm glad that so-and-so is here today. Um, and maybe this is for you because this isn't about comparing yourself to other people. This is about your own heart and your own life. But I love the self-help because I could do that. I could look down on other people because I was the president of the Baptist Student Union. There were only three other people, but I was the president. Um, and I was going to these other Bible studies, and I was doing these other things. And so I felt really good about the self-help. Um, and then I also loved it because I hate grace. Deep down, I don't like it. Um, I had a really good friend. He was my roommate in college. 
And one day I got home from doing something and there on my bed, my dirty clothes had been washed and folded in a nice neat stack. And, and Dave had done that. And so I went to Dave and the first thing I said to him was, bro, I'll wash your clothes next week. Um, I didn't, I couldn't live with the idea that he had done something for me and, and I had to pay him back. Like I had to do something because now I kind of owed him something. If ever someone takes me out to eat, I'm going out to eat with someone and they say, Hey, I've got this. My reflex impulse is to say, I'll get you next time. Like, let me cover it next time. Um, because I don't want them to pay for me. I, that, I feel in that moment, like it's hard to receive the gift. It's, it's one of those times when, have you ever gone to a party or um, like a Christmas thing and someone has you a present and they give you the present and, and you didn't bring them one? It's really hard to take that present because you're thinking, oh man, I didn't, like I didn't bring you one. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll send you a card in the mail. or like, You want to do anything that you can because you feel so funny because it's, it's grace. It's a gift and you're not, you're not on even terms. And so I love self-help. I love trying to do it myself because then with God, it's like, all right, God, like I've been doing this stuff. Like we're, we should be good. You should smile at me. You're not smiling, but you should smile because did you see the checklist? Do you see all the things that I'm doing? Um, but at the same time, I hated self-help because I mean, I already told you all the times I would pray a prayer. I always wondered have I done enough? Like, this is my list of boxes that I've checked, but maybe my list should be this long. Like, am I checking off enough boxes? Am I doing enough stuff? I would also feel so bad when I failed. Okay, I'm doing these things, but I haven't been doing these things. And then I felt ashamed. I didn't want to tell people that I was struggling because if I would tell them I was struggling, then I ruined this picture that I'm building of how good I am and how much I'm doing. And underneath all of that is that reminder, that constant reminder that are things okay with God? What does he think about me? Is he smiling on me? Does he, does he like me? Does he know me? So you end up being stuck. We get stuck in our sin. The, the self-medicating thing and running to these other things, that doesn't help. You just want more and more of that and it sends your life out of control. But over here, you think you're getting in control, but really it's this this relentless pursuit of trying to be good enough, trying to be right enough, trying to do it all. And, and, and it doesn't happen. And, and there's a, an author that I like. He's a Puritan guy named Horatius Bonar. And he says, when you understand the true nature of sin and how inadequate your attempts are to deal with it, you have to look outside of yourself. You have to look outside of your own efforts. And so this isn't enough and this isn't enough. So we know we need a lamb. And there has to be a sacrifice because our efforts don't do enough. So last point, what can a lamb do? What does a lamb do? And, and this is a little spoiler alert. Um, nothing. A, a lamb like that doesn't do anything. And you might think, wait a second. I mean, you're, the whole point of this is you need the lamb. So what do you mean doesn't do anything? And, and I'm just taking it out of Hebrews. This is what Hebrews 10 says. Since the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered up every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have to continually be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. And here's the, here's the key verse. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
impossible. That, that kind of a lamb won't do it. They, they, may have, they may have escaped the destroyer by putting the lamb on the door, but that was, that was once. They, they, how do you continue to know that a lamb won't do it? That's why Hebrews says you have to keep sacrificing again and again and again. A lamb isn't enough, or at least a lamb like this isn't enough. Because the story of the lamb sweeps across the whole Bible. You know, there's, there's Adam and Eve, and they sin, and they, they want to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God sacrifices an animal and clothes them. And then you, you move a little bit forward, and you've got Abraham, who's called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he doesn't have a, a lamb. But then right before he, he sacrifices his son, God provides a ram. And then you have the Passover. Then you've got this place in Isaiah where it talks about this suffering servant who, who, like a lamb that was led to slaughter, is going to take our sins on us. And then you go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, right at the start, chapter 1, verse 29. And John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he sees Jesus walking up, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't need a lamb like the Israelites needed. You need the perfect lamb. You need Jesus Christ. What Isaiah says about Jesus is that he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears, being silent, he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? Why did God have to kill Jesus? Why, if he lived a perfect life, why should he die like this? Why did he need to be sacrificed? And it's because we need to know that if God came in, he would be smiling upon us. And there's nothing that we can do to earn that smile. Nothing that we can do to merit his acceptance and his favor. But Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus was all, he always had the Father's smile. There's these amazing places in all four of the Gospels where Jesus is baptized and the heavens are torn open and this voice comes out of the sky and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Nothing but the smile of the father. How do we get that? How do we know we have the smile? Are you trusting in Jesus? He, he did it all. He lived the perfect life for you. He died. You should have died. We need a sacrifice. And the punishment for your sin should be death, forever separated from God. But Jesus did that for you. He did it. And, and he did it forever. You don't, that's what Hebrews is saying, one time. It's not as though you need to keep going back again and again and doing more and more. If, if you put your faith in Jesus, there is nothing you can do that would make God love you any more than how much he loves you. Because he loves you purely based on what Christ has done. He loves Jesus perfectly, and, and that's how he sees you. So there's nothing you can do. But in the same breath, there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. The sin that you struggle with, repent. Come back to him, because he loves you. It's, that's not keeping you away. What keeps you away is your, your lack of faith in Christ, your lack of turning to him. That's why we sing, um, all I have is Christ. All of our good works, all of our self-help, it's nothing. Jesus was perfect. We've got to be perfect. All of the places we run to that won't satisfy, they're empty. But he is, he said, I came that they might have life and have life abundantly. And there's this great place in 1 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
How do you, how do you know you have the smile of God for all eternity? Do you, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? He's the perfect lamb. And he died for us that, that God would forever smile upon you. So let me say a few implications to that reality. First, know that it is finished. Um, when, when Jesus died in John 19, he had received the sour wine and he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And this is what I mean by it is finished. There's a movie that came out uh, many years ago uh, called Goodwill Hunting. And uh, the movie's okay. It's, it's, it's graphic language about life in Boston. But it's a, in essence, it's about this really gifted kid who um, meets with a counselor. And as he's meeting with him, it comes out that he was, he was abused by his father, beaten by his father as he grew up. And, and there's this really powerful scene where the counselor looks at Will and says, Will, it's not your fault. And he goes, I know, I know. This, all this stuff, that, what happened to me, I know it's not my fault. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not your fault. And he goes, I know, I know, Sean. It's, it's, it's not my fault. I get it. You said it once already. He's like, no, 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 no. It's not your fault. And he says, stop messing with me. And he says, Will, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he just crumples into a, a pool of tears because he just can't get it through his head that it's not his fault. And I think the same way for, for us is it's finished. And you might say, yeah, yeah. You just said that. You read the verse. I know. It's finished. I say, no, 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 no. It's finished. And you think, yeah, yeah, I've, I've got it, Paul. I've got it. I say, no, no, no. It's finished. That's what Jesus said. It, the, the smile of God is complete, forever, eternal, finished. If your faith is in Christ. That's all that there is. Again, that the Puritan guy that I quoted earlier, he has a, his book, he says, The voice from the cross did not summon us to do, but to be satisfied with what has been done. And, and I think that's the, that's the call for us, is to know that it's finished. All because of what Jesus has done. He, he loves, God loves you. He smiles on you. He delights in you. Um, Second is to, I just encourage you to, to not simply know this, but feel this, to feel this truth. I, I told you I coach my daughter's soccer team, and whenever, whenever other parents are there, there's nothing like seeing parents cheer for children at a soccer game, because whether they kick the ball or not, if, if it's just going in the right direction, parents are going crazy, because they just touched it. You know, it's like this mob of kids running around the ball and, and parents are going, are going insane. And I feel like that's the way that, if that's the way that we as parents feel for the, for the good things, the little things that we do, how much more does God delight in what we do as his children? It, it's a powerful reality. Um, and, and lastly, you're never done with the cross. I mentioned Genesis with Abraham, with Isaac, with the Passover, with Isaiah, with John, saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And finally, in the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, it says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so at no point in our lives as followers of Jesus are we ever done with the Lamb, because there will come a day in heaven where it's not the lion who's on the throne, it could have been the lion. 
But he says, it's the lamb who was slain that's on the throne. So for all of eternity, we will remember that we're there not because of what we've done, not because of any other kind of joys that we've sought satisfaction in, but because we have our lives hidden with Christ in God. And that's our hope. Let me pray. And then after I pray, we'll we'll worship some more. Father, thank you so much for your son. Thank you for the lamb that was slain for us, the life that we have because of Jesus. The fact that because of what Christ has done, we have your smile now and forever. Nothing keeps us from that. If we're resting, if we're trusting, if we're living in the faith that we have in your son, that is the the source of, of an identity that is unshakable. And that can do so much in our lives. And I pray in the lives of this congregation and in their relationships with one another and in their witness to, to this community. And that you would be glorified by this finished work of your son on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran, I held bound race, indifferent to the cost. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to. Suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace.
saying this, in fact you sang it a couple of times today, it says, and I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me, now all I know is grace. Paul displayed God's love to us this morning through the scriptures, and I pray that as you sang, I beheld it, that it came from your heart that you have beheld it. Let's pray. Lord, there is nothing, nothing in this life better than you opening our eyes to behold your love displayed. And Lord, I'm grateful that you do that work. And I pray as we leave this morning that we will go with the joy of seeing it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.